This is the Cascade Hiker Podcast. Find us over at CascadeHikerPodcast.com. I'm a country boy with the soft side. My heart wanders up north to the hillside. Now I've never met anyone quite as beautiful as you. I'm your host, Rudy Gets It. I'm here to inspire you to get out on the trail. You putting in two-mile hikes, five-mile hikes? Are you still on the couch? Come on, let's go on a backpacking trip. I'm going to introduce you to some folks that have done that and a whole lot more. All right, next on the Cascade Hiker Podcast, what's your name and where are you from? I'm Dennis Dubois, and I volunteer for the Mount Rainier Nordic Patrol. What have you been up to this summer? Well, uh, man, uh, trying to keep busy with my kids. I, you know, I've, I've realized that uh, pretty much most of my hiking now is 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 almost 100% with my kids, even my backpacking. So that's kind of fun. How about you? Well, that's good. Yeah, I took uh, I took a couple of grandkids out cross country skiing on Monday before New Year's, and uh, they are eight and eleven, and we had a great time together. Ah, uh, that's fun. And where were you at? We just went up to one of the snow parks off of Snoqualmie Pass, the uh, Cabin Creek Snow Park. Yep. Okay. I've never been there, but I've, I see a lot of people uh, like to explore that area. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's groomed cross-country trails and, you know, maps and signs and other kids and that sort of stuff. So it's good for them. Fun. Yeah, I, I, I've never done – we've snowshoed one time. So I'm, I, I guess I need, to, I, I need to quit putting my own fears on my kids because I, <laughs> I just don't like being – it's not necessarily a fear, but I just don't like being out in the cold. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, we kind of we kind of try to keep moving to keep warm. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah, well, and and when you do that, then are you concerned about um, like sweating as well? Because I know sometimes that's that's an issue. Is that more like when you're lost, you don't want to be sweaty and in, in, in the cold? Well, I I don't like to work up a real sweat, but sometimes it's unavoidable. You know, you if you have altitude to gain or you've got some distance to cover. Um, it's just it's part of exercise. So if you're um, if you're using good uh, long underwear, the base layer, you know, the polypropylene or, or some of the other newer fabrics, or even wool, some of the new wool base layers are really terrific. It's not uh, scratchy like wool, and it, um, you know, despite being a little damp from perspiration, it still keeps you warm. Now. Um, I know that you are a volunteer with the Mount Rainier. Is it is it called the Nordic uh, Nordic Patrol? Is that right? Nordic Patrol is the name of it. Yeah. Now, uh, just a quick question before we we really start talking about that. Sure. Um, man, there's been so much conversation these last couple of weeks with the government shutdown, and um, and then of course when I go to the website to to kind of check out uh, the the Mount Rainier Volunteer Nordic Patrol on on their website really highlights that as well mm. does that does that affect you as a volunteer at all well yeah it does because people i wasn't among them but i mean people uh sign up way in advance starting in early december for weekends all the way into april and then as the weekend is approaching uh you know it's your volunteer weekend coming up you starting i start on monday like charging batteries for my gps and making sure i've got all my clothes clean that I'm going to want and all of that stuff. And then there's a potluck dinner on Saturday nights at the cabin. So you're out shopping for food and 
um, you know, trying to think of, trying like lots of email going back and forth about how many people there will be and is anyone vegetarian. And so there's all this activity leading up to a weekend. And then you find out on Friday or actually you find out on Thursday in our case that um, there's no patrol this weekend because the park's still closed or, the, you know, the government shut down pretty abruptly and the patrol for that weekend five people I think were signed up to go and they're like no I'm gonna do something <laughs> gotta go do something else with this food and do something else with my weekend that's suddenly free wow so um I would imagine though that there's probably still people going out and um I don't know experiencing the park uh in certain areas is that true and if so um who's patrolling them well, I don't know what part of the park is actually open, if any. It may just be closed at the gate at uh, Miss Qualley entrance, which is probably the case, but I can't tell you for sure. Um, so that would mean that you you can't even get past the admission gate. You can't you can't pay, you can't get in, and um, park's closed. There are still uh, kind of a skeleton crew of law enforcement rangers up there to make sure people don't slip through and vandalize stuff, for example, but. Um, you know, the park, Mount Rainier, actually closes when the government shuts down. Wow, it's so weird to think about. Know. Um, you know, just it's, it's such a prime uh, location in our in our state and stuff, and really in our country, and it's just it's just hard to really grasp that. I know. Yeah. Wow. So let's talk a little bit then about the uh, the Nordic uh, Ski Patrol. What, what exactly? How would you define that? Well, Nordic Patrol is uh, a group of volunteers who tour around Paradise, which is the, the visitor center there on the south side of Mount Rainier National Park that's open year-round. And we uh, tour around on skis and snowshoes. And uh, basically what we do is called preventive search and rescue. We keep people found as much as possible. <laughs> uh, and we, we patrol an area that's a fairly wide-ranging around Paradise, with Paradise at the center of it. So if you think of Narada Falls on the, the west end of our patrol territory, Panorama Point, which is a big uh, traffic big traffic area for people who are looking for a nice view or heading on up from there up to Camp Viewer. Um, Reflection Lakes is a real popular spot for visitors to come in and visit for the day. Mazama Ridge sort of surrounds two sides of paradise and uh, even out to the Tatouche range which is right on the south boundary of the park and you know people people come to visit for the day and, and for various reasons they can get disoriented pretty easily and end up farther from their car than they thought they were going to be um, the trail even if even if they even if they visit the park in the summer and they're used to the trails and they know the terrain suddenly all their familiar landmarks and all those trail signs and everything are under five meters of snow and <laughs> they uh you know everything's white in the winter i mean things can go wrong when you're hiking or, or camping in the snow so um, we try to just prevent search and rescue situations by contacting the public uh, just saying hi you know we're in these bright red uniform vests with white crosses on them. So we're pretty identifiable as ski patrol. And we're not really there as any kind of an enforcement function. We're there to help keep the visitors safe because there are a lot of visitors on a busy winter weekend that just come in for the day. 
And then visibility can change, you know, parties get separated. Um, so that's basically what we do day in and day out on the weekends through the winter, December through uh, early April. Well, you mentioned that you're not a law enforcement. Um, is there anybody up there that is uh, kind of patrolling for enforcement? And if so, uh, what would be something wrong that somebody could do? There are rangers, law enforcement rangers, uh, out in the backcountry. And so we're just an extension of that team. Um, and they're out there to do a lot of the same things we're doing. It's just not as many of them on a, a weekend are able to get into the backcountry. So we're eyes and ears for them in the backcountry. But, um, yeah, rangers, law enforcement rangers are out in the backcountry. And what they're looking for is... Um, Oh, the real common stuff is like camping violations, camping where you're not allowed to according to your permit or camping without a permit. Um, people bring dogs into the park and walk past the sign that says no dogs because that sign is one of those signs that's under 15 feet of snow. So uh, <laughs> they, they traipse into the backcountry with their dog and, you know, encounter a ranger who says, turn around, take your bar dog back to the pavement. Um, that's the real common stuff. Sometimes there's there's what the park considers vandalism in the backcountry, which is uh, stuff like, you know, cutting boughs off of a tree is against the rules in the park. And sometimes people don't realize that. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I, I don't know why my mind just immediately went to, uh, I don't know, a bunch of you know YouTube yahoos that, uh, well, I guess I shouldn't call them yahoos, but, you know, people that are building forts out in the middle of the, you know, the wilderness and, and it's like, man, especially in a national park, you know, you, you got to watch your P's and Q's on that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, but what about as far as skiing? Are there are there actual rules up there? Um, is there a certain elevation that you're not supposed to go above? No, pretty much once you leave the parking lot in Mount Rainier National Park, you're you're on your own to choose your route and be sure that you're prepared to travel there. Um, so... People, uh, people routinely get out of their cars at the Narada Falls parking lot and travel a couple of miles up into the Tatoosh Range, past Reflection Lakes, and south into the Tatoosh Range and find some great skiing up there and, um, and then come back out. Um, people routinely travel up to Camp Muir, too, which is at 10,000 feet. Terrific vistas on a clear day, a nice ski run on the way out if the snow conditions are right. Nice long descent and uh, lots of uh, interesting variations on that on the way down. So that can be incredibly busy on a really nice bluebird weekend day. But there are really no, no restrictions on where you go, uh, just the caveat that you need to be prepared to take care of yourself wherever you decide to go. Now, from a, a, a skiing, because as I mentioned, I've, I'm not a skier by any, in any sort of way. Um, so, you know, I kind of like having these conversations because it really does let people like myself uh, aware. And there might be some people listening that know. Uh, what are some of the, like, if I'm going on a hike, I kind of know what I need to have in my pack. But are, are, is there anything above and beyond that that you would take uh, with your skis? No, well, you would start with, uh, in the winter, of course, you're you're typically in Mount Rainier National Park, you're in avalanche terrain. So one of the things you want to have under your belt is some avalanche training and the avalanche forecast for the day, which comes from the Northwest Avalanche Center, 
And with those two things in hand, you uh, head into the park. And um, for a typical day tour, you don't need a permit in Mount Rainier National Park, only if you're planning to spend the night camping in the backcountry, uh, or if you plan to go uh, above Camp Muir and actually uh, climb toward the summit of Mount Rainier at 14,000 plus, then you need a climbing permit to do that. Uh, otherwise, for a typical day tour, you just come in, pay your admission to the park, uh, or, or you know, show your annual pass and come on in and, and enjoy your day. So in terms of other stuff that you need in your pack, in avalanche terrain, we carry some essentials for avalanche safety, which is uh, an avalanche transceiver to help us find buried companions or help them find us if we're the unfortunate buried one in an avalanche. Um, a shovel for rescue digging and, and uh, if you plan to make a snow cave or an igloo or some other sort of shelter, a, a shovel sure comes in handy. And a probe, uh, which is about an eight foot long aluminum or carbon or steel tube that uh, disassembles and, and can be assembled quickly and used to probe through the snow and find uh, find victims in an avalanche. So those things are typically readily acceptable in your pack. You do need to have the 10 essentials. You go out any time of year. Um, those are pretty easy to look up online. There are variations on what are the 10 essentials or the 11 or 12 essentials, but uh, it's easy to find <laughs> a good list of the 10 essentials to help you uh, survive an unexpected sleepless night out in the cold. And then um, a map of the park is useful. On Nordic Patrol, when we're out, we're carrying a, a stack of maps with us that are simple photocopied maps of the winter trails in the park. Because people are familiar with the summer trails sometimes, but the winter trails follow different routes. There are some routes up there that are wanded. We have bamboo poles marking certain routes that are considered avalanche safe or safer at least uh, under more conditions. So the Park Service at the Visitor Center, for example, directs visitors toward those routes that have bamboo poles on them because they're easy to follow. You can find your way over to Reflection Lakes, for example, really easily just by following the little black and orange bamboo poles up the snowshoe route over there. Um, so we hand out those maps for free to anybody that wants one and you can pick them up in the visitor center or download one online and print it and have it with you. A good topographic map is also good to have along. Plenty of clothes because um, even on a very nice day once the sun goes down or a cloud moves over the temperature can plummet. It can, The weather can change really suddenly at Mount Rainier. It can go from a beautiful day to a whiteout in just a few minutes. And that means you're going to be digging for warmer clothes and your map and compass and trying to find your way back to the parking lot. So that's the that's the gist of it. Now, when you talked about the uh, the bamboo poles uh, on, for the for the certain trails, uh, how many uh, trails are marked that way? Is it just the one you mentioned, or are there multiple? Well, the trail over to Narada Falls is the primary one, and uh, uh, excuse me, from Narada Falls up to. Uh, an area called Canyon Y, which is a big intersection of roads that are snowed in in the winter and trails that lead over to places like uh, Paradise and Reflection Lakes. So there are bamboo poles on that route typically and then bamboo poles marking your route from there over to Reflection Lakes, another mile or so, 
Um, and that's those are two very popular routes right there. Um, there's a, a wanded route at the Nisqually Vista Loop, which comes right out of uh, right out of the lower parking lot at Paradise, and goes about uh, three quarters of a mile or so. I don't know the exact distance, but it's a short, easy, flat trail that goes out to a viewpoint over the Nisqually Glacier. And then we have a few poles here and there just to mark major intersections of trails so that if you're looking for that big junction or turnoff, uh, sometimes there will be a one bamboo pole marking that spot. Waymarkgearco.com. Go over there and check out the packs. Like we said, he has some offered there, a lot of different colors to choose from in the through 38 and 42 liter packs at 210 uh, and the 50 liter packs starting at 260. Uh, this little ad, we're going to talk about how you can get them very customized. And there's lots of links here on his website over at waymarkgearco.com. Go over to Mark's website and check those out. I mean, uh, he's got some really cool color schemes coming up in the future. I know I saw down at PCT Days, he had his Sunset uh, model out. Uh, look for that in the future where uh, you can actually get multicolors uh, within just a single panel, which is just... It, it, you can customize these packs like just absolutely crazy. So as far as the colors go and the, and like the accessories I've talked about too. So go over there and at least check it out and follow on Instagram, waymarkgearco.com. And uh, I had a question from, uh, I guess, probably, I, I don't know if she's another novice, but uh, I did throw it out to my group uh, on Facebook, my uh, hiking backpacking group for the podcast. Uh, asking if anybody else had any questions, and, and Shannon Cunningham has been on the podcast a bunch. Uh, she wanted to know what is the best advice you could give skiers, um, you know, n aside from the stuff you already mentioned. Backcountry skiers heading into Mount Rainier? Yeah. Well, I think terrain selection is probably a good place to start. Um, a lot of people come into the park and head straight for Camp Muir so they can ski back down and it is a fun run. Uh, there are a lot of options for coming down from there whether you're uh, an intermediate or an advanced skier but there's also a lot of other terrain around Paradise that's a lot of fun. Uh, we have a great time patrolling around Paradise without ever going up to Camp Muir just because there's so much variety of terrain around there. So based on your skill level you can find plenty of places to have fun without heading up to Camp Muir, especially if, if Camp Muir doesn't sound like uh, it's something within your endurance or, or skiing skill scope. Then check out some of the areas uh, like skiing over to Reflection Lakes or up into the Tatouche uh, or along the Zama Ridge. There are lots of places to play up there. So it's easy to find something that's uh, suitable for you and your companions without going to the uh, sort of one super popular spot in the park. Sometimes, uh, sometimes the best advice is um, maybe pointing out some things that you've seen in the past that, that were done wrong. Um, you know, without pointing fingers at anybody and calling out any names, uh, maybe you could list off a few things that you've seen people do and you're just like, okay, we probably, probably not a good idea to do that in the future. <laughs> Well, you know, people do get disoriented easily in the park. There's, uh, there's a sense when you pull into the park that here's a plowed parking lot with 
rangers directing you into your parking space and a nice visitor center with hot chocolate. Um, and as soon as you step out of the parking lot, it really changes quite a bit. You're walking into the wilderness and you really are on your own there. So it's common for visitors to come into the park and just go for a little walk that turns into a little longer walk that turns into they're not quite sure where they are. And um, it's more common than you might think um, because we're out there in our bright red vest. People will approach us and will ask us uh, which way the parking lot is or how much farther it is to paradise. And we set them on the right track, give them a map, you know, and a smile and maybe some sunscreen and point them on their way. Um, so people, parties get separated amazingly easily, especially when visibility drops or when you have a, a party that's a mixture of skiers and snowshoers, it's surprisingly easy for parties to get separated. And it's uh, surprisingly difficult for them to try to reconnect when terrain and trees and especially uh, poor visibility make it really hard for them to find each other again. So on occasion, someone will appear at the parking lot and go into the visitor center and report that the other part of their party is missing. And that's one of the situations where Nordic Patrol would get involved because we are out in the field already with radios. We'll get that call about the missing party and where they were last seen. And uh, we're already out there, so we form a safe, uh, uh, we form a hasty search and head for the area where that person might be found and, or those people and, um, and try to connect with them and, and then report back. Uh, We've had situations where separated parties were both in the parking lot, but in different parts of the parking lot. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, very often, you know, the other half of the party is out there looking for the people who have returned to the parking lot. So it's, it's more common than you might think. People do get lost. People do spend the night out unexpectedly. Um, and it's, it's just, um, it's remarkably easy to become disoriented when everything is white, especially when visibility goes down. And people aren't always prepared for the cold. So when we hear that someone is missing, it's typically late in the day. It's starting to get colder already. And really with the, the extreme terrain around Mount Rainier and the harsh cold, winter is very unforgiving. So we know that someone's life is in jeopardy. So we are out there looking for them. Uh, trying to locate them, get them into warmer clothes or, or a sleeping bag or, or something like that to, to get them warmed back up, figure out if they can come out under their own power or uh, if we need to transport them out and evacuate them. Uh, what about, um, I know that you guys are preventative uh, search and rescue, so but, but you did mention that you would help if, if uh, you know, the call comes out. So I would assume that you've probably seen some accidents. Um, uh, is there a common accident other than, than the one you're describing? Really, it's much more common for somebody to get lost or uh, disoriented than it is for someone to be seriously injured in the backcountry. But uh, there was an incident a couple of winters ago where some people had skied from Camp Muir down onto the Nisqually River, and there was enough snow cover for them to ski. Some years, there's enough snow cover. You can ski all the way out to Longmire. So you ski under a big bridge called the Glacier Bridge, and uh, 
a skier was cruising along with his buddy right behind him, and he just caught an edge of his ski, and it he fell on the snow really hard, and he fractured his leg. And you think, wow, how lucky he was right under the bridge. He literally was like where you could stand on the bridge and see him. And it still took something like six hours to get him from there to an ambulance um, just because of the, the care that was required in transporting someone with that kind of a fracture. He had a, uh, a pretty serious fracture in his lower leg. And, um, and then to get him up out of the riverbed, up to the road, into an ambulance, and on his way out of the park, um, some rangers and search and rescue people were there late into the night and the wee hours of the morning to try to get him to definitive care. Wow. What about, uh, you, you also mentioned avalanches. Uh, how common is, is, is it for somebody to basically be you know, lost in an avalanche? It's surprisingly rare, especially if you consider how many avalanches there are. There, there are avalanches uh, in the winter practically every week somewhere within uh, viewing distance of paradise. And I've stood and watched some of the common runouts avalanche, but most of the trails avoid the really frequent runouts. And not that you can't walk into danger, but... Um, the, the commonly traveled trails tend to avoid the really extreme runouts that run frequently. And, you know, avalanches happen all the time in the wilderness when there's nobody around. We hear about them, of course, when there is someone around and gets caught and carried, buried, even killed. Uh, but as, as those go statistically in the grand number of, of avalanches, um, very few of the avalanches that happen actually catch people. It's very serious when they do, though. SixMoonDesigns.com. Hey, I wanted to talk about the Gatewood Cape. Um, it's a it's a shelter, uh, basically just like a solo tarp. It's ten ounces, but it also doubles as um, as rain gear. So you can actually wear this as like a poncho. Hey, that's that's pretty cool. I, I I'm just kind of surfing on their uh, website, Six Moon Designs dot com and kind of ran across this so if you need a 10 ounce tarp that you can also wear as rain gear <laughs> this is this is the coolest thing i've seen honestly uh they've got the new version for 2018 and it says here uh it's the only one of its kind and it's been in, it was introduced in 2006 and it's been carried over hundreds of thousands of trail miles so uh, join the rest of the crew out there. Go to sixmoondesigns.com and follow them on Instagram as well. Tell them the Cascade Hiker Podcast sent you. Uh, what about uh, people that would be interested in volunteering? Uh, I know that this year you mentioned that it's already past the date, but in future, how, how would somebody basically, what, what would the role be that they would have to, to go through? Well, we recruit in the summer for new patrollers. We have, I think, about 60 or 65 patrollers on the roster this season. So it's a full roster. And we recruit in the summer and fall. We do our training in early December on the mountain. So um, you need to be like enrolled, accepted, all of that, basically by Thanksgiving. And I imagine you'll put the, the longer, the complicated URL on your website, but 
someone looking for a quick route to it could go to nordicpatrol.org and find Mount Rainier Nordic Patrol there and follow the link to the National Park Service site where there's a, a page called uh, Get Involved. And from there, you can fill out a um, quick form, contact the patrol director, and submit an application to be considered as a, a new patroller. Now, do you think that people that are, are the, the 60, 65 folks and, and yourself, um, would, you, would you classify yourself as um, kind of a, a, a volunteer always? I mean, do you do, uh, do you volunteer work otherwise, like uh, in the summer with trails or anything like that? I don't do volunteer work for trails in the summer. Um, that's a great endeavor, and I admire people who do it. My summers are pretty busy, and... Nordic Patrol is something that I got involved with, gosh, over 10 years ago and got involved with it fairly deeply. So, you know, I, I started patrolling around, I guess, 2008 or so. And then back then, Nordic Patrol was, it had been started by a ski club called the Washington Ski Touring Club. And in about 2015, I was elected president of that club for a one-year term. And when that term was over, I became a patrol director for Nordic Patrol along with another volunteer. And the two of us ran the organization for a year of big changes. The ski club decided to spin off Nordic Patrol into its own organization. So there, were a lot, there was a lot of work to do around that transition. And the two of us did that that year. And then um, once that was done, we elected you know, a new leadership group, great people, hardworking volunteers who run the organization now and we stepped back to be advisors to that volunteer board of directors and i still lead weekend backcountry patrols uh, about three times a year which is i think typical for the the people who are in that lead rank in the patrol and i do uh and i teach avalanche safety to patrollers Oh wow! Yeah, that's a that's a full plate. <laughs> oh man, I I mean, it, you know, I think a lot of people when they hear somebody like yourself describing that, um, until you're in a role of volunteer, when you you know, I don't know if you're retired, that that part doesn't matter. Um, especially you know, if you are working and you're volunteering to, on top of that, man, that's a that's a full plate. And and, and in the positions you're talking about, uh, that's a lot of work. Yeah, it really is pretty time-consuming, but it's incredibly satisfying, too. Volunteers are terrific people to work with, and uh, I've run other volunteer organizations that were not outdoors-oriented, more entrepreneurship-oriented, and, um, you know, volunteers are just such a, a dedicated, hardworking, selfless group of people, and I really enjoy working with them. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit, um, I would imagine somebody doing the things that you're describing, um, I, 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 I guess I can't imagine, but I'd like to imagine uh, your childhood. Um, I would assume that uh, there was somebody in your life that got you interested in the outdoors at a younger age. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I have my father to thank for that. He had two boys, and he really wanted us to grow up with that outdoor experience. And so we, uh, at a very early age, we moved to Bozeman, Montana, and he put me on skis for the first time when I was about five years old. And I think that year he was probably on skis for the first time, too. So we <laughs> learned together. Um, but he was 
very much into hiking and camping and fly fishing and uh, learned to cross-country ski so we could do that together. I think I, I downhill skied as a, a tyke in Bozeman, and then we moved to Montana. Uh, excuse me. We moved to Colorado. Um, I was, I guess, seven or eight years old, and that's when I learned to cross-country ski. I could actually come home from school, put on my cross-country skis on the back deck, ski straight off onto the snow, and I had a couple hundred acres of woods and creeks and frozen lakes to, to cruise around on with my little brother or my friends from the neighborhood, and then I could be home for dinner. So I got a lot of cross-country skiing experience just living yeah. there, and we skied trails around Crested Butte and the Gunnison area where we lived. So, yeah, I definitely have my father to thank for my enjoyment of the outdoors. He, um, he made some life choices when his kids were very young that gave us the opportunity to grow up with the great outdoors as our backyard, and um, I just can't describe how important that is and what a connection it's given me to the outdoors. Yeah, that's great. Um, what also I, I know something else that uh, you and I, uh, I that I found out about you was that uh, you had a, a a website early on. Um, what what website was that? Oh, oh, this is very early on. Cool Trails. Yeah, I ran a website. Uh, this is like the very early days of the web. I was very much into hiking and and backcountry skiing, and I thought it would be cool to share my stories and pictures somewhere, and uh, the web had literally just gotten started. Um, so I, I built a website. Today you'd call it a blog, but 25 years ago that nobody'd heard that term yet. Um, but I put hiking stories online with pictures, and, uh, and you know, at first, in the early days of the Internet, you put a story and a picture on the online, and dozens of people would see it. Um, but the web grew so quickly, um, I ran it for, uh, in my spare time, of course, for about a dozen years and then sold it. I met some really interesting people online who had stories of their own about hiking in the Northwest. Uh, so it's kind of like what you're doing now, but a very early form, an unevolved form of what you're doing now. Because uh, I was, you know, other people would want to share their stories online and they didn't know how, so I would just add them to my website. Um, it was a great time. Turned out I was better at uh, promoting and building traffic than I was at web coding. So um, you know, I was glad to step away from that after a while. Uh, it turned out to be, it had just an enormous amount of web traffic. And that was what was interesting to the acquiring company. And that's also where I got my uh, trail name, Cool Trails. Oh, that's right on. Oh, that's cool. Cool. That is cool. Um, <laughs> wow. So, uh, what? What? I guess it would be simple as to just go there right now. But what? What style are they doing now on that website? Oh, it it was acquired by a company that was building out a number of different trail oriented websites, uh, and this is a, a long time ago. So I'm not sure where. I, I don't think you would find my actual content anywhere. They were more interested in the domain name and absorbing that into their own properties so i don't think it i don't think cool trails actually exists out there anymore <laughs> that's too bad uh i like the name a lot and, it, and um the, you know just the fact that you picked it that, that's that's a that's a neat thing 
Um, well, hey, uh, Dennis, I just want to say thanks so much for enlightening us on on everything you do, and it really it really opens that door for people to learn more about uh, about skiing out there and stuff. So thanks so much for coming on the Cascade Hiker Podcast. Hey, thanks for inviting me, Rudy. All right, that's the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget to join the Patreon page. Find me at patreon.com slash Cascade Hiker Podcast. Also, hit me up uh, with an email, Rudy at CascadeHikerPodcast.com. Find me on Facebook. My Facebook page is Cascade Hiker Podcast. Twitter, find me at in underscore Cascade Hiking. And I'm Cascade Hiker Podcast on Instagram. Thanks, Whiskey Fever, for letting me use this track here, Tall Grass, off their album, Gonna Wake Up This Whole Town. Go find them at ReverbNation.com slash Whiskey Fever. Hey, see you next week. You were sweet like honey on a heartbeat. You were fine like wine and sunshine. I could feel you coming on strong. Could never be wrong. Could never be wrong. I see you're laying down in the tall grass. Playing mandolin in a white dress. I come running when I hear that song. It could never be wrong. It could never be wrong. Where you want to run, baby, I'll run too. I would leave this world for a beautiful girl if I could just find